Welcome to TCN Talks. I'm your host, Chris Como, and the goal of our podcast is 15 to 20 minutes of relevant need to know to help you in your role as a hospice, palliative care, and serious illness leader and team member at all levels of the organization. So our goal is concise and relevant needs to know to help you in your role. And the bookend of our podcast is always something to make you think deeper about our topic and also about life itself. So hello and welcome. And before we get started today, I do want to thank our sponsor, Delta Care Rx. Delta Care is a title sponsor for our 2022 Leadership Immersion Courses. Delta Care is a premier vendor of TCN and provides pharmacy benefit management services that allow their clients to experience deep discounts utilizing preferred local network of pharmacies that can provide same-day delivery when necessary. So just want to thank Delta Care. They're a great TCM partner, a great partner to all of our TCM members and many hospice and palliative care folks out there. And just thank them for all the great work they do in their industry. Also, a good time for me to give a quick plug for our TCM Leadership Immersion Course, which is May 9th, 10th, and 11th. The training has been has gotten some great reviews. People said it's some of the most potent and powerful leadership training that they've ever received in the hospice and powder cure space. If you want to learn more, go to teleascn.org and look under the drop-down under courses. So our guest today is Jeremy Powell. He is the founder and CEO of Acclivity Health. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, Chris. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to have you. Well, Jeremy, first off, what does our audience need to know about you? So let's see, fun things about me. I raced motorcycles, uh, as, even as an adult, uh, off-road motorcycles. Actually won my class nationally in 2011. Uh, so sort of a bucket list thing for me to get to do and, fu- and fun to get to do that. Uh, professionally, uh, I'm a recovering clinician. I spent most of my clinical time in outpatient physical therapy. And then I followed my dad's footsteps um, into technology and for 25 years or so, have been trying to improve clinical and financial outcomes with cutting edge technical services. Well, that's awesome, Jeremy, and it's been it's been great to know you. I've been actually excited to have you on the program. I think this has been a long time in coming. Before we jump in, it'd probably be good for you to share a little bit about Acclivity Health. Yeah, so Acclivity was born on the back of those two decades. Most of the team that's in the senior leadership roles at Acclivity have been together for about two decades. Um, we've had the fortunate circumstance of doing analytics for most of that time but also helping sort of manage the risk that comes down from these alternative payment models that you know is getting everyone's attention today so whether it's vbid the hospice carve-in or um, some of the sip programs that started and then stopped or even some of the things that are happening around the aco reach and dce we've spent our lives in that space understanding how to work there uh, and Acclivity was really born to be a technical tool to support these organizations that have to take on these new alternative payment models. And we've been very lucky with our timing, very lucky with the outputs of our capabilities to really meet the market needs. So it's an exciting time to be at Acclivity. Good deal. Well, that leads us to my first question. So how does Acclivity Health support hospice and also serious illness or palliative care providers in delivering high-quality care? Because I think that's something always, you know, High, high priority for all of our folks that are listening to the program. Yeah, I think it's a it's a bit of a loaded question. And what I specifically mean is quality has so many definitions in today's terms. If you just sort of think about, you know, the hospice care index, any of the CAP scores, uh, hospice compare scores of the past, uh, the things that keep hospice organizations up at night, like the the DOJ and OIG audits that can sort of look for you know quality there. 
Uh, and then if we even really move forward into alternative payment models, there's all the quality around the claims-based things that are going to be measured under VBID or under MedAdvantage itself over time. And um, we cover all those bases. You, you have to be able to, to actually measure and deliver clinical quality as clinicians inside of hospice recognize it. But you also have to be prepared for the way that the plans themselves are going to measure quality, which will look very different. It'll look like days at home. It'll look like the amount of um, patients that are utilizing emergency rooms or hospitals um, instead of the level of care aligned to the hospice itself. Uh, and so when you think about what we do, it's, it's really being a, uh, an, a, an ability to sort of aggregate all the data from these sources where you're going to get measured and then give you a preview of what the plan might look at or what the quality measures might dictate relative to your success. So you're always watching for leading indicators, you're always measuring key performance indicators, and you're trying to adjust your staff, you adjust your clinical programming to meet those things uh, sort of before you get penalized for them in the future, and, uh, and that's coming for all of us. Yeah, when I when I actually, you and I were talking before the show, I wanted to title the, the title of our show today about artificial intelligence and basically how it's applying to serious illness care. So when I think about that question I just asked you about quality, it, it feels like you really can help us start to play more offense and get people into the right care at the right place at the right time. Can, is that a false assumption or a pretty good assumption? It's a great assumption. Um, the reason, though, that that would be advantageous beyond just the, the hospice sort of revenue and census growth is that the way we're going to measure those things in the future are going to be tied to total cost of care, which will look at feudal spend, how much how much service was provided after a person was hospice eligible versus the benefit, which will be, a, again, a quality penalty. Today, in the, the world we sit in right now, April 4th, 2022, the thing that matters most to hospice leadership is how do I grow my census and have the ability to have the right, right. staff to deliver the right level of care across all service lines. Um, where we do that, I think better than maybe anyone is having the ability to baseline what you've done prior to us getting involved and then measure real growth. So a real world example of that is we base, we baselined a, a hospice organization for about a three month period. We turned on our system and in the first month uh, we created an incremental 75 uh, referrals uh, over that baseline. And then we continued to do that monthly ever since we've been live. So imagine today if you're sitting, um, you know, at your hospice and you're and you're thinking about how do I grow, you shift your problem focus from how do I grow to how do I serve 75 additional incremental patients in a single month, which is a first world problem, but that's what we sort of do. That's today's world. Tomorrow's world is how do I how do I contract for the patients that would have been qualifiable that I can go get into our world, um, and I think that's going to drive how you really determine quality by these new measures. Again, days at home, hospitalization rate per thousand, ED utilization per thousand. Those kinds of measures will be what you, you really will focus your attention on in this new mo in this new model. Jeremy, when I think about, and so obviously I know you won't give away any trade secrets, but how do you how are you able to get the data to apply the artificial intelligence algorithms? to kind of flag those patients so that way, like in your example where you increase the referrals, how, how do you do that? How, does, how do you get the data? I think it's, as I've even shared with our own board about why I think Acclivity is such a great partner for our network, that's the number one question. They all sit there and go, oh, but then how does he get the data? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So when we first started, um, as you know, sort of being a part of, of our early, early, early days, it's really about getting partners onto the in, into the ecosystem. Uh, so fast forward to today, we have over 10,000 sources of, of data all out in the community that, that pre-exist, uh, that exist today and pre-exist before we even get involved. Um, they include the electronic health record data set. We've got about 45 integrations. Event notifications, that's all the admission discharge transfer notices. We cover every state. We've got about uh, 3,000 hospitals, for instance, that give us real-time information. All of the states, or most of the states, have HIEs, health information exchanges. The pharmacy benefits, so Drew and, and Delta are examples, uh, Jason Kimbrell and, and Hospice, uh, OptumRx are, are examples where we have partnerships and can pull data in there. And then, then lastly, all the payers. And with Medicare being the payer for Hospice, we actually get um, identifiable records on every patient that you're delivering a Part A or Part B service for. And I get the full um, identifiable claim set, usually up to about seven or eight years on the history of that patient, and then weekly updates. And you may think that's not all that important, but if you're driving home health to hospice conversions or palliative to hospice conversions, if you could know with no labor what patients' journeys are relative to prognosis, relative to frailty, relative to palliative performance scale, relative to likelihood of an admission to the inpatient setting or ED utilization, that would really help you predict which cases should get your support and services. So we get it from a lot of data, and then we triangulate it down to these things that really matter to these hospices um, so that they can better support their community. Is there, um, I actually have encountered this with someone we were talking to and said, oh, well, yeah, that might work for you guys in North Carolina, but I'll leave the state nameless. They don't understand this state. So is there any state that you've encountered that there's something unique about their data set that makes it a little bit more difficult to be able to eventually be predictive? Like, I guess maybe another way to ask the question is, is there like a minimum data set? So we need a year worth of claims history. And the fact that we can get access to all 32, roughly 32 million Medicare beneficiaries um, that's not a problem. That's a newer thing for us as a business. Um, we yep. spent lots of money, time, and energy to get high trust certified. That got us into a um, Medicare uh, program called Data at the Point of Care. Um, we can turn on any hospice, palliative, home health, primary care, you know, oncologist. It doesn't matter who you who you have as a partner or who you already have uh, as a service line under your umbrella, we can turn on those particular service lines to get all of that data. Obviously that's nationwide. What I would answer about this, the different markets is it's less about the data being available. It's much more about the culture of that community. So in Hawaii, there's a very, very prominent use of hospice in the culture of the Hawaiian islands and they use it significantly. They have concurrent care for about 90 days. All of that exists pre, you know, predated sort of the VBID work where that's required. So in that market, it's really easy to sort of get the clinicians aligned. The data was always there, but the clinicians aligning there are simpler. Down in Puerto Rico, some something similar happens. Man managed um, care has been in that market for three decades. Uh, and so they also seem to have culturally aligned to use the benefit. Uh, and you'll find flavors of that all, all across the United States. Um, but that's really the, the bigger factor than the data acquisition play. Gotcha. So maybe this is a good segue question then. So how does acclivity, because we've talked a lot about hospice, we kind of alluded to this year's illness space, but how do you help support people move to value, especially to prepare their serious illness providers 
to participate in different types of value-based arrangements, new payer models, et cetera? So it really just, it really is an economic play at first. I mean, um, having done this, you know, the HMO, um, which is really sort of a managed care approach to, 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 to insurance, to care delivery, is, you know, 30 plus years old. Um, hospice is a benefit, it's been around for, you know, 40 plus years. It's a, yep. it's a value-based care arrangement. You're getting a daily rate for the entirety of the care. So, so hospice is probably one of the most senior sort of veterans of this game. What value-based care means for the seriously ill providers is how, how do you make um, decisions, almost actuarial type decisions about whether or not this is going to benefit your ability to um, thrive under these alternative payment models. So, the, so the, way, the way to look at it is can these financial drivers and incentives that are supposed to provide financial outcomes, can they be met by your team? And it's a marriage between the delivery of service that you have built great capabilities around and do those services actually align to what the incentive is hoping to deliver financially. Good examples of that in most markets with us, um, hospice on its own can save between twenty dollars and $40,000 per death using our tooling. Palliative wow. care can add another $12,000 to that, to that savings per death. Um, and if you if you just stick to that knowledge and you can benchmark your your clinical prowess against those kinds of quality measures, you really do have the ability to go to market and be in any kind of arrangement. It can be VBID. It can be your own approach to the large plans. It can be standing up and operating your own ACO reach. They used to be called high needs DCEs, but it's a it's a reach ACO program for high needs patients. And when you do that, you know, we have customers that, that have achieved between 10 and 30% savings. So a 500 panel patient population is going to net that hospice about 5 million in bonus. So wow. this is real, real opportunity. And the, and, the, and the fear we have is that somehow it's so different that we can't do it. But we've been doing value-based care as, as a hospice uh, delivering benefit under that hospice designation since we started and it's not it's not scary to do this it's just you, you a fool takes risk intelligent people manage it and you've been managing risk the whole time you've been a hospice so jeremy when you guys have gone through the data first off how accurate has your predictive capabilities gotten to is it like in the 90th percentile or yeah, so that's a, if we're talking prognosis, like end of life and terminal predictions, um, there are really two things that matter. Yes. I think people get tripped up about those two things. So the first of which is deciding um, how, to, how to score the true positive. So Chris, I'll use you uh, as my example. So if I predict using the machine learning in our model that Chris is a death in the next three months, 90% of those predictions actually pass in that time series of three months. That's the first one. That's the first thing that matters. The second thing that matters is how many other deaths that I didn't create as a true positive actually happen. These are all the accidents and emergencies that cause death. They're all the traumatic cardiovascular or bleed or any other thing that's an instant death that we didn't predict, that the, that the model can't predict yet. Um, that's called recall. So our system has, since 2018, been able to get the true positives right at greater than 90% of the time. So if we say a person dies wow. um, in that true positive, then 9 out of 10 do. Recall, we get better than 50% of the time. So of all the deaths that occur in that three-month uh, window, we predicted 50 of them. 
right? So the math is 50 times 90 is 45. So 45%. Humans get the same prediction the way I just described with precision and recall at 12%. So if you could hire a medical director or a social worker or a nurse that could do this at almost four times the uh, the accuracy you would and so that's what we are at those predictions But people hear 90% and they think there's no way No, we're predicting of the persons that actually are the ones that are in this true positive that 9 out of 10 actually passed that time series We still have a ways to go because we're getting it about 45% right because there are just so many deaths that you can't predict still But if we were to tell you again, Chris is in that population right. you need to get his advanced directives captured his goals of care and you need to be delivering on those well, Jeremy, we're getting kind of in the in the close. I want to ask you two questions. Any closing thoughts? But then second question is, uh, last time I had an amazing guy on, like you asked him, what was his favorite book and why? And his answer blew me away, and it's so applied to our topic. So two things, your closing thoughts on what your favorite book is and why. Um, if you're not yet investigating data at the point of care for your agency and then you do anything upstream from your own hospice, um, please go and spend time there. It's a Medicare function and you will be well served to understand it. Um, reach out to us. We're one of, I think, three vendors that do it today. Happy to introduce you to the others, but um, I think it'd be well served to do that. Um, favorite book and why? I'm going to break the rules if it's okay and, and give you a book and then I'm going to give you an um, audible. And I think it's only on audible, so sorry that you might have to go there. Uh, the book is an obvious one, um, Being Mortal, Atul Gawande, um, largely because I think anyone who hasn't read that in this space is missing out on really, really um, valuable knowledge about a clinician, a physician whose dad was also a physician, going through this journey and, and realizing even when you have the clinical acumen, you still struggle to get what you want for your, for your family. Um, that was game-changing for us in the early, early days of acclivity to sort of build our thesis. Um, the second one, which is the rule breaker, is a, um, an audible by Andy Weir. You may have seen the, the movie The Martian, uh, but he did a book called um, Project Hail Mary, and it's, a, it's almost like 1950s radio theater on audible. It's so incredibly well done. If you have a, a, any amount of kids in your life or any, any part of you that's still into science fiction and fantasy, it is an incredible listen. That's awesome, Jeremy. Well, and I think that's so appropriate. I'm glad I asked you that question. Um, I've kind of grown up in this industry for 27 years, and we've all gotten used to how technology is coming to so many facets of our life. You've got, obviously, Echoes in homes. You've got Alexa in homes. Right. And so hospice has not morphed all that much because we've been so high touch. But we are going to get left behind so quickly. One thing I was in a meeting today we were talking about is how the baby boomers have transformed every aspect of the economy. And they've always demanded something different. And I think they're going to be demanding something very different. So our sophistication is going to have to cre increase dramatically, especially over the next five, seven, ten years. And so I love the work that you and your team are doing in this space. First time I met you, I thought I actually told my board, I said, he is selling the Holy Grail. <laughs> this is what we've been wanting for many years. And to yeah, think about how – oh, sorry. No, I'm saying it's here. I mean, I, I think, you know, or any, any entrepreneur that starts a business sells a vision. What we've been able to accomplish in the last, you know, 18 months is changed what the world, even, even our worldview looks like. So I would suggest you're right on the money and the timing for these kinds of investments are, are now. And there are going to be, unfortunately, winners and losers. And, and you probably want to be in that first camp. 
Yeah, that's well said. And one thing you predicted to me early on, because we really did talk to each other very early in both of our kind of coming into existence is, I promise you we're going to get there just the more data we get um, and the fact that you guys now have the Medicare claims data. Well, again, thank you so much, Jeremy. And I'm going to leave with a quote that I think applies to what Jeremy is talking about today. As always, this is our book in. This is actually from Dr. John Kanegi, who actually was a good friend. Um, he took the concept of Toyota Lean into healthcare, and this was his quote, the key to successful disruptive innovation is failing fast and then be, being able to improve and change. Thanks for listening to TCN Talks.